Thank you for joining us for the sermon podcast of Northwest Presbyterian Church in Dublin, Ohio. Our church exists to celebrate the gospel through Christ-centered study, worship, and prayer, to connect in community through fellowship, accountability, shepherding, and outreach, and to love our city through sacrificial giving of time, treasure, and talents so that it might flourish as a place where Jesus is known. For service times and more information about our church, visit npcdublin.org. And now, Pastor Dave Shooter. Every time I start a sermon series, I I think of the book that we're starting uh, a little bit like I think about my kids, right? You don't have a a favorite kid necessarily, uh, or actually in case any of my kids are listening to this sermon, uh, but you think, oh, you know, here here, here comes a, a great kid. I, I am excited about this kid. And then uh, another kid comes along. So, oh, here, here comes a great kid. I'm excited about this kid too. Uh, and then we have three kids. The third kid comes along and says, well, well here, here is a great kid. I'm excited about this kid. That's the way I feel uh, when we start a new sermon series. Uh, I, I thought the letter to the Hebrews was my favorite book until I started studying Thessalonians. Uh, I thought the Apostles' Creed was my favorite creed. But we just had another of my favorite creeds this morning, the Nicene Creed. So many favorites. Uh, But I thought I would share a little bit of the story of uh, the path to the Thessalonian study uh, because the seeds were planted in June. Uh, Thessalonians came around in my uh, just regular Bible reading schedule. And in June, as I read through each of these chapters, I was encouraged that the Apostle Paul in Thessalonians uh, is taking up for that church in about the midpoint of the first century uh, many of the same questions uh, which the church in the 21st century has. What does faithful Christian living look like uh, when Christianity is viewed as one religion among many uh, and in many ways a a strange religion at that? Uh, What does faithful Christian living look like Uh, as the church seeks to be uh, influential in the world? What does it mean to have a ministry presence? What does it mean to declare the gospel? Uh, What priorities should Christians have as we wait for King Jesus to return? These are the kinds of questions uh, that we have. These are the kinds of things that Christians talk about uh, right now. What does it mean to be a faithful Christian in uh, the year 2022-2023 in America. And one of the things that I found particularly striking was how much like 21st century Columbus, Ohio, first century Thessalonica was. It was the capital for its region uh, in kind of central Greece. Uh, It was located at an intersection of sea and land uh, commerce, Uh, The influence of the region of Thessalonica was primarily economic. It was not, of course, the political capital. That would be Rome. Uh, It was not the thought capital. That would be Athens. Uh, But it was powerful economically, uh, just as we are living through a moment where our region is growing in economic influence. Thessalonica was religiously diverse Uh, As a Greek city, it it, uh, had the traditional Greek religions. Also, interestingly, at that point in the uh, first century, uh, the Roman practice of venerating the emperor was beginning to take root. And we will see as we study through this book that that secular practice, kind of the worship of the, uh, the 
the emperor uh, was taking root and uh, Paul has to address that as well. There was a large Jewish population, large enough to justify a synagogue. And that's where Paul makes his entrance into Thessalonica and where Thessalonica makes its entrance into the New Testament uh, in the book of Acts chapter 17. Here's the report. You can flip over there if you'd like. Uh, but Paul, we know, customarily went and began to preach the gospel to his fellow uh, Jewish folks. And it was his custom to begin preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And that's where he went when he showed up at Thessalonica. Paul went, as was his custom. And on three Sabbaths, three weeks, uh, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Jews, uh, devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Now, bearing in mind uh, that Christ means king, and keeping in mind that Thessalonica as a city uh, was adopting this relatively new practice of worshiping the emperor, we understand uh, a little bit more of why there is a kind of a flashpoint challenge in Thessalonica. Because Paul comes, he preaches that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, that he is the king, and he calls people to an allegiance to Jesus apart from an allegiance to the Roman emperor. This was provocative. And Luke reports in verse 5 of Acts 17, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. Now it's possible that the synagogue leadership was jealous of Paul's influence and success. It's also possible that they were jealous to keep a low profile. It's possible uh, that their commitment to worship one God, the, the traditional Jewish faith, right? Hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, already put them at odds with a pluralistic culture. Uh, the Jewish faith was already viewed as strange, uh, and they wanted to keep a low profile. We know that uh, Jewish folks had been evicted from the capital city in Rome at about this time. And so you can imagine the consternation that might have happened in the synagogue when Paul shows up and announces what ought to have been great news that the Messiah has come. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah. He commands our allegiance and we should give our allegiance to him. And the Jewish leaders, you can almost imagine them going, oh no, don't say that. Don't, uh, don't say anything that is going to put us on the outs with uh, the political authorities. Don't say anything that's going to draw that kind of attention to us that is going to put our security at risk. And the mob that they stirred up could not locate Paul and his friends, uh, and so they dragged his hosts before the government, and they say in verse 6, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. The, the city leadership was disturbed. Uh, Jason and his friends bailed themselves out and immediately hustled Paul and his friends out of town. And that's the story of how the gospel got to Thessalonica, which creates the occasion for the letter. Paul's hasty exit meant that he did not have much time to mentor the Thessalonians. 
And so he has to mentor them over the distance. And he sends Timothy back to check on them. Timothy returns to Paul with a report and returns with a, a list of questions and issues that needs addressed, particularly questions about how to live in the present in view of King Jesus's future return. And so Paul writes this letter to answer those questions. And he expresses what the letter is about in a prayer that he makes in verses 11, 12, and 13 of chapter 3. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints." So he says to the Thessalonians, answers, what should the Christian life look like for Jesus' people? What should Jesus' people be particularly known for uh, as they await King Jesus' return? Well, uh, increasing love for the church community, increasing love for the world around the church, and holiness uh, marked by blamelessness. Heart strengthened to be blameless in holiness leading up to the Lord's return. And we'll see, particularly when we get to chapters 4 and 5, uh, and I do hope that you'll be here regularly for the series, uh, that Paul explains uh, what this holiness is like and that it's eminently practical. It's not kind of a vague, uh, uh, ill-defined and nebulous kind of holiness, but it's very practical. It looks like sanctified sexuality. It looks like brotherly love in the church. It looks like how faith intersects with our marketplace jobs. It looks like having hope in the face of physical death and in an anticipation of life to come. It looks like applying a Christian worldview uh, over and in critique of the worldviews of the present day. These are the issues that Paul picks up. And he says, these are the things that the church needs to be about. Sexuality, friendships, work life, next life, worldview. And these are the things that challenge us today, are they not? These are the questions that we have in this present moment. So we'll look at those. But first, Paul says, as he launches into the letter, uh, Christian life looks like living with deep gratitude for belonging to the church. Now it is providential uh, that we start our new membership class today for the uh, the some of you who will be in that class, this is a great lead into what we'll be talking about because Paul says that the church is an assembly or an organization or a community like no other. And so he starts this letter uh, not by jumping into all of the issues that he will talk about, but he starts this letter by casting a vision for the church about what church really is. And then I want you to think about that just for a moment, because you've taken the time and you've made the effort to be here this morning. Uh, you are part of the assembly, at least for this morning, if you're visiting. And I, I just want you to think about what church is. And I want you to be open potentially to uh, Paul expanding our vision of what church really is. So let's follow along. First of all, Paul says that church is an assembly that is united like no other. So 
lean in close. I, I, I want to tell you a secret. I want to tell you a secret. Church, you're beautiful. You're beautiful. Now, you're not beautiful, uh, particularly because most to all of you have decided to shower this morning. Uh, you're not beautiful, particularly because uh, you're dressing on trend right now, although that's nice. Uh, but, but you are beautiful because of all of the assemblies and organizations and parties and nation states. There is one assembly that is beautiful like no other assembly. And that assembly is the regular, ordinary, sometimes messy, sometimes generous, sometimes kind, occasionally cantankerous, sometimes confused, gracious, forgiving, skeletons in the closet, all at once, church. Church is an assembly, beautiful, like no other. And I was reminded of that this week when I, I, I took up a book that I picked up on a, a recent trip by a, a professor named Dustin Bengi. I probably pronounced his name wrong. Don't tell him. Uh, his, his book is nice. Uh, and it's really about looking at the church the way that Jesus looks at the church. Because oftentimes we look at church the way that we look at church. And, you know, we know the ups and downs of church and the struggles of church and the successes of church and the in and out of church. Uh, but he makes this point that church is beautiful because the lens through which Christ regards her is the lens of the cross. The focal point of blood, righteousness, forgiveness, union, justification, regeneration, and grace. His cross makes her beautiful. I want you to let that sink in for a moment. There's, there's no other organization in the world that Jesus looks at in the same way. Because there's no other organization that Jesus has shed his blood for, right? In the way that he has shed his blood for his bride, for the church. And Paul describes the church as an assembly like no other in verse 1, where he writes, Paul, Silvanus, Silas, uh, that's uh, just another way of writing his name, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now, I will confess uh, that I read past verse 1 quickly in studying uh, this week. It's what you'd expect at the beginning of a New Testament letter. You have the authors, Paul, Silas, Timothy. You have the recipients, the church in Thessalonica. You have a Christian church receiving a Christian letter from Christian leaders. And so we would expect language like, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. It sounds straightforward, except before the word church became to uh, have a special Christian meaning, because we all, we all know what we mean when we say church, right? Like you go to work tomorrow and someone says, what you do on Sunday? I say, well, I, I went to church. Everybody knows what that means. You went to church. But before Jesus came on the scene and before the gospel went around the world, church had a secular meaning. Uh, it, it meant assembly uh, and it meant primarily kind of a, a legislative assembly, a, a gathering of leaders 
And this assembly concept takes on a Christian meeting over time. But when you keep that in mind, you see that Paul is saying something unique about this church assembly, where he describes the church of the Thessalonians as an assembly like no other. And the key distinguishing word is very short. What makes the church an assembly like no other is the word in. That that the assembly of the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not the church of God in this case, but the church that is in God. In God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you've read the New Testament or or been here at MPC for a bit, you know that Paul often describes Christians as united to Christ. He says that, that believers are in Christ, that believers are spiritually united to Jesus by the bond of the Holy Spirit. But here in this letter to this tiny church in this important city, he communicates the same concept that this gathering of believers is spiritually united to God the Father. And so he begins his letter by appealing to our vision of what church is. Church is an assembly like no other. You can think of some of the uh, prestigious assemblies in our day. I don't know, maybe uh, the, the United Nations General Assembly when they meet in New York City and representatives from all over the world of all different um, relationships with each other, sometimes enemies, sometimes allies get together and, and they meet and they discuss things. Oh, the church is a gathering even more unique than that because the, the church is in God the Father. The church is in Christ. I find it compelling that like every other church, the Thessalonian church faces challenges, and we're going to learn about them over the next weeks. Some of them will sound familiar. They were a small collection of people. Their influence in their city must have felt small. Following Jesus meant not following the emperor. Following Jesus meant not going the way the crowd was going. They faced opposition simply for believing in Jesus. Following Jesus meant beginning to live out a sexual ethic different than the culture at large. And their greatest hope rested at history's far horizon. Because they were, they were people who were in the moment, but also looking for the future of the king's return. And yet Paul doesn't start with any of the challenges facing the church. He starts higher. He starts Uh, with the glorious, unique, beautiful identity of the church. The church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The great Baptist pastor Charles Spurgeon uh, put it this way in a sermon in 1891, where he described the church as the dearest place on earth. Think about that. The dearest place on earth. We say, well, that's, that's the kind of thing I'd expect a pastor to say. I mean, honestly, the, the pastors are the, are the ones who'd have the most reasons to think it's not the dearest place on earth. <laughs> and yet Spurgeon is right. Here's what he says in a sermon. You that are members of the church have not found it perfect. And I hope that you will feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I should never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I found one, I should have spoiled it. For it would not have been a perfect church after I'd become a member of it. 
Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us, end quote. And one reason that the church is the dearest place on earth is that it is an assembly, secondly, that's loved like no other. Church is an assembly loved like no other. So I had some sad news this week about a, a mentor who was important in my life uh, in the early days of being a pastor. Uh, and then again, when I came back from military service, I learned that this mentor uh, is diagnosed with blood cancer. And I, I wrote him a note. And in the note, I said not just that I was praying for him, but I, I explained how I would be praying for him. Uh, and I, I just felt compelled to do that because this concept of thoughts and prayers is so bandied about in our world today that it can make praying seem trite. And so I wanted my friend to know not just that I was praying for him, but I wanted him to know how I was praying for him. And uh, Paul does that same kind of thing here as he moves on in these verses. He tells the Thessalonian Christians how he's praying for them. And as he tells them how he is praying for them, he reminds them that the church is an assembly that is loved like no other. We give thanks to God always for all of you. Notice the all of you. He's thankful for all of the Thessalonian Christians. He does not have favorites among the church. Uh, he knows that there might be some tension in the church. And so he wants them to be assured of his affection for all of them. So how does he pray for them? Constantly mentioning you in our prayers. They are always on his heart, speaking to the affection and concern he has for them. And he remembers in verse 3, remembers them before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps you hear the echo of the three great Christian virtues in there, faith, hope, and love, uh, familiar to us. Uh, for instance, from the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 13, these things remain, faith, hope, and love. Paul is saying that the, the work of the Spirit in producing virtue in them is evident. We don't know exactly what he has in mind, if specifically with regard to work of faith and labor of love. Steadfastness of hope typically refers to persevering through opposition. And that is, seems to be the case here clarified in verse 6 that the Thessalonians were enduring trials, that you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In what way? For you received the word in much affliction and with the joy of the Holy Spirit. I mean, Paul and his friends had preached the word in Thessalonica and then had been kicked out of the city. Uh, this happens to Paul all the time, right? Uh, he shows up, he preaches, he gets arrested, he gets ejected, uh, he gets put on trial, he gets beaten. And of course it happened to Jesus too. We don't maybe think of it that way, but, but Jesus endured trial for his faith. Now we know he went to the cross. And so Paul is saying, as, as, as I, Paul, and Silas and Timothy endured trials, and as you know all the more that Jesus endured trials, so you too are enduring trials for being Christian. And you're doing this steadfastly and hopefully and joyfully which is instructive to us in our day, that, that if you are a member of the dearest place on earth, the church that is in God the Father and in Christ, that you should expect some pushback. Someone somewhere 
is not going to love that you love Jesus. And that's okay. It's okay. Increasingly, I think it will be so. Now, I don't wish sadness for us, but I think that we can learn from Paul's prayer here. Faith, hope, and love aren't only virtues to be celebrated at weddings and on blue sky days. Faith, hope, and love are virtues when we face pressure for following Jesus. Faith, hope, and love are are what we carry with us into not only the ups, but also the downs and into the trials. But as much as faith, hope, and love in action are important, uh, even more important is God's love for us. Look at verse 4. Knowing, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. God's love for the Thessalonians, the same as God's love for every Christian, is evident in his choice of the Christian for faith. Now, Paul does not expect us to be controversial. He doesn't have 20 centuries of of church history and debate over what this process of choosing is like or what it means. Paul simply states it as fact that, that he and Silas and Timothy showed up in Thessalonica and began preaching in the synagogue. And some of the people in the synagogue and some of the Greeks who were also worshiping in the synagogue and some of the leading women in the city believed in Jesus. And Paul says that that it is a mark of God's evident love for them that when the gospel came to them, they believed. And we might think, uh, well, of course, God is loving. I'm so lovable. And it's interesting that, that we have 20 centuries of Christian influence where we automatically think that God is loving. I, I, I think that, uh, you know, even people who don't believe the Christian message, right? Even people who, uh, who don't worship the Lord Jesus still have a concept that God is loving. I mean, that, that's a little bit of, I think, almost the default view of people uh, that they would have at this point, that, that God is loving, regardless of what I believe, almost. But what we fail to appreciate until someone tells us is that in the first century world, people didn't expect the gods and goddesses to be loving. It was not uh, primarily the expectation in the Greek religion that the gods and goddesses existed to love the Greek people or the worshipers of the Greek religions. The gods and goddesses existed to be appeased by the people. They existed to have sacrifices brought to them by the people. That the, the stories of, that, of the Greek mythology are not the stories of a loving God seeking to be merciful to people. So what was amazing to, to the Thessalonians as Paul showed up and preached the gospel is that there is one true God. That was amazing. And that one true God is lovingly disposed to people who aren't lovable. Because, of course, the reality of human sin means that in view of a holy God, no one is lovable. No one is uh, immediately lovable, and yet God loves us despite our our demerit, that, that we don't deserve his love. And yet Paul comes and he preaches 
in verse uh, seven, uh, chapter 17 and verse 3 of Acts that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And when you think about it from the Thessalonians' perspective, we begin to marvel all the more because, you know, unlike us, they weren't conditioned to this kind of message. How revolutionary it would have been for them to realize, well, instead of us having to bring sacrifices to a, a god or goddess to appease them to get us on uh, their side, the, the actual god of the universe has made a sacrifice on our behalf. And that the sacrifice that he has made on our behalf is none other than his son, the king. And that it was necessary for the son, the king, uh, to suffer for us and to rise and to uh, ascend and to reign and to return. That was revolutionary. And that message was preached and some believed it. And Paul says, if you have come to believe it, then that shows that God has chosen you for faith, which is amazing. So, so church is an assembly made beautiful by the Lord Jesus, uh, an assembly lovely like no other, and an assembly that is loved like no other. And, and just so that we don't get only lost in the theology, I, I want you to understand that that is actually happening here. That, that, that in this room, and in rooms like this across our city, where the gospel is being preached, and in rooms like this across the world, whether there are many people in the room or a few people in the room, whether it's a fancy room or a plain room, and not just in our century, but across 20 centuries, as the gospel is preached, and as men and women believe in the Lord Jesus, they discover that they have been loved in an amazing way. And that's happening here. What I, what I want you to see is, is you know, sometimes we think, or, or, or maybe just pastors think, or maybe it's just me, maybe it's just my problem. You think, well, you know, all of the action that's really interesting in the world is happening out there. And church is pretty plain. But it's actually rather the opposite, isn't it? That, that, that what God is doing in the world, in the church, is amazing. And if you're a Christian, you get to be part of it. Because if, if you're a part of it, you're part of an assembly that has been converted like no other. That's, that's the third thing that Paul marvels at here, I think, for our benefit. So what does the gospel coming, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction look like? I mean, sometimes you read that verse and think, well, what would it be like to be at church where the gospel came? in power, and in Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. What would that moment be like? What do you think it would be like? Would there be emotional outbursts? Would there be evidential, external, experiential kinds of things? These things are kind of written and pondered about uh, in church history. The American pastors who lived through the first great awakening pondered this. How would you know that the Holy Spirit had shown up and had worked? Jonathan Edwards concluded that you know that the Spirit has worked because uh, a person's esteem of Christ has been raised, a person's conscience has been awakened to sin, and a sincere love for God and others has been created. In other words, a heart has been converted. And it's interesting to watch what Paul affirms to the Thessalonian church as evidence of the Holy Spirit having worked powerfully. 
And I think it is worth noting so that our expectations are calibrated scripturally. First, that when the Holy Spirit has worked in Thessalonica, Paul said it started with joyful reception of the gospel despite opposition. As you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. That, that believing the gospel didn't make your life easier, but believing the gospel made your life <laughs> eternally better. And so you received it with joy. And, and the joy of the reception of the gospel became the reputation of the Thessalonians, so that you became an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we don't need to say anything. Paul says your reputation precedes you as converted men and women. You receive the gospel joyfully. Is that, is that your reputation? Are, are you reputed to be a joyful recipient of the gospel? May it be. A second mark that the Holy Spirit had worked was their ready reception of the apostolic orthodox gospel message. For they themselves report concerning the kind of reception we had among you. Paul says, we showed up, we preached this revolutionary message. It was controversial in the culture. It led to this mob event and you received us. If you believe God's word, if you trust his message, if you seek to live under the authority of scripture, under the authority of the word, even when it brushes up against cultural norms and attitudes, that's evidence of the Holy Spirit working in your life. Well, there's, there's a third thing. Repentance from idols to the true worship of the real God. How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Now, I, I no longer take for granted that people in our uh, suburban Midwestern context don't worship physical idols at shrines. I, I know in our, our multi-faith city, some will come to Christ having worshiped at statues or shrines. But more of the kind of idolatry is the kind of heart idolatry uh, that exists when we elevate something that is good in life to something of ultimate value. Uh, uh, it's only appropriate to refer to John Calvin on the Sunday of Calvin's baptism, although I don't know if he's named for the reformer. Uh, but John Calvin is famous for saying uh, that the heart is an idol factory, that, that our hearts are just naturally good at churning out worship of all kinds of things. You could, you could, I mean, and, and often they're good things. It's, you know, the, the goodness of a career that you enjoy, that you are skilled at, elevated to a matter of ultimate concern, so that the thought of losing that career would be devastating to you, or to a relationship that is important and significant in your life, and that uh, you have brought love to and has given love to you and is completely appropriate and God-glorifying, but were you to elevate it to an ultimate status, it would become an idol and an object of worship. Paul says that when a person turns away from worshiping self, which is really what idolatry is, 
worshiping something of our own imagination. When a person turns away from worshiping self, then it's evidence that a mighty work of the Holy Spirit has happened. The, the most powerful works of the Holy Spirit that have been described here are relatively quiet, aren't they? And the fourth mark of the Thessalonians' authentic conversion is genuine, patient hope for the future return of Jesus. That they now wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Waiting well for the King's return. Setting your hope on on that horizon point, whether it be tomorrow or some number of days or years in the far off future, saying that, that, that my hope in Christ now is a hope for today and for the future. And come what may today, with the ups and downs of life, that, that the hope that I have for life rests on that horizon point, where, where the king who has lived and died and is risen for me will return for me. That, that that moment is the moment that I am living for. Not so much the other moments of the here and now. Not that they aren't important, but that they are put into perspective. That we don't overinvest our hope in the present moment. Because our hope is in the return of the king, that that kind of hope is countercultural for the people who are believing in God's Son. And it's countercultural to the Thessalonians in general who were so much invested in their present moment. So these are good evaluative questions for us. As you, before the Lord, think about yourself. Have you joyfully responded to the gospel even if it's brought opposition into your life? Do you live under the authority of the Word even when you have questions about what the Word teaches? Do you let the Word correct you? Have you repented from idols to serve the real God? And do you keep repenting because the challenge of the Christian life is we keep discovering idols. They are are like, I've got these weeds by my mailbox and I keep swacking them and they keep growing back. And you might think, well, Dave, you're not doing a very good job killing the weeds. I've tried a lot of things. I am, I am one weed clearing event short of using fire. Uh, but I, I would then destroy my mailbox and the neighbors would be really worried if they saw me set my mailbox on fire and they wouldn't know that I was going after the weeds. The weeds keep popping back. That's the way idols work in our hearts. They keep popping back. And so you see an idol and you repent and you say, Jesus, you're my king. This thing is not my king. And it will happen again and you keep doing it again. That's not bad. That's good. That's healthy. That's the normal Christian life. So four invitations as we conclude. First, as we Think about waiting for the future return of the king. Perhaps today is the day that you need to believe in the king for the first time, to place your faith in him. Perhaps secondly, you need a renewed vision of the church as an assembly like no other. 
perhaps church has begun to feel mundane and it's helpful to acknowledge that for every Christian who shows up in any church on Sunday morning or whenever the assembly gathers, a remarkable thing has happened. Thirdly, perhaps you need to rest in God's sovereign choice of you for faith. Perhaps uh, you need to revel again in his love for you. And fourth, perhaps we need to recalibrate our expectations for what the work of the Holy Spirit looks like, because as we go through the rest of this book, the Spirit will keep uh, calling us to areas to repent and to renew our trust. We hope you've enjoyed today's sermon podcast. Subscribe to our podcast, and for more information about our church, our values, mission, and ministries, visit npcdublin.org.